Hello, and welcome to, I've even, not even worked out what episode we're on. You want to start with a welcome while I work out what episode we're on? Yes, today this is Dr. Dawn and Dr. Jess discussing theory versus practical from the lab of Jess's house and Dawn's therapy room. Yeah, so we'll just randomly have to make some noises because otherwise people will be really freaked out by the silence. You know, they get, they've got used to getting annoyed by the silence and zoning it out. But uh, yeah, so it's episode 67. There you go. Cool. That's where we're up to. So we, uh, we're trying something different because we're ridiculously busy and um i don't when did we last sit in starbucks and and chat and do podcast stuff i don't know but i'm having withdrawal symptoms yeah yeah well i still pick up the odd starbucks because you know the family demands it but yes the uh the ability to just sit and chat through stuff now is done on messenger um which is not great for everybody who wants to listen to a podcast is it so gotta get up early and do yeah at breakfast time i'm sitting eating cheddar wheat <laughs> the pressures the pressures um so yeah we're both in our own our own spots doing our own thing and uh and recording this so um, we do as a sidebar need to do one on neutering and hormones because um we did a webinar on that but we didn't actually do a podcast on it so um yeah all sorts of interesting stuff but this this one was um based on our recent discussions, as these things often are. And um, the difference between those who work in the academic spaces, the theoretical spaces, and those who are having to put, who have the feet on the ground, who are having to deliver the results and adapt to the theory and the practice and, and make everything work, right? I call it like working in the trenches. Yes. Um, these are the dog trainers that have got years of experience, don't necessarily have academic qualifications, but their um, experience and perception of the world is, is no less valid because they have the evidence. They have um, you know, the, the tangible results that um, help hold them accountable for what, they've, what they're doing. And that's hard to change because, not that I want them to change, but it's hard to change when you've been doing it so long and I, I like to think that I'm reflective. So I think, you know, could I be biased in all the experiences that I have? For example, our, our current situation with dog training in the academic world is that this is dog training, not ethology, that, um, you know, dominance theory doesn't exist. We're not allowed to use social status or rank. It, it's irrelevant to dog training. And in ethology, that's um, the opposite. Absolutely. It's fundamental to group living species. It's how they interact with each other. And, you know, their, their model of the world. So, you know, I'm often questioning myself um, because I've had a, a large pack of dogs I've lived with, you know, probably about 800 dogs by now. Um, I've been doing the maths over the years. It's been 800 dogs for a couple of years now. It's probably much more. I mean, how many did I have last year? Do you know what I mean? It's, it, goes, it goes crazy, you know, at least a couple of a month, if not one a week. So um, I'm, I've lived with a large group, my biggest group was 35 dogs. It's very hard to talk to somebody who lives with dogs or um, now and increasingly now, speaking with people who work in daycare, I've been talking to a lot of trainers recently and they're working in daycare where, you know, the group model of dogs together and interacting together is really obvious. Those are the people that I would ask for advice, people that live with dogs or, or yeah. work with groups of dogs, not people that um, 
own one dog and then read a book and decide they're dog trainers. So that's really tricky. So you've got that side of the trenches and then you've got the academic side. So I'll let you speak about that because I'm speaking quite a bit. I need to eat my sugar. Well, meat. it's the same. It's not just dog training, right? This is one of the things that makes the relationship that you and I have really interesting is because everything you say applies to everything I do as well. Um, except without the dog in the middle of it, obviously. <laughs> so um, one of the things I've discovered over the past, uh, so 10 years I've been doing this now in July. July is my 10-year anniversary of being a full-time therapist. And um, one of the things I've discovered is um, I, I don't see psychologists. They come to me, but um, anytime I, and they have exactly the same session as every other client I do, but they don't come back. And the reason they don't come back is because I work so differently that if they are to accept that what I do works, then they have to challenge their way of thinking and change it and question everything they do. And that's less acceptable than saying what I do doesn't work. So I actually have reached the point now where if somebody says they're a psychologist, I tell them they probably shouldn't see me because I'm not the right person for it. And, and I, like you, get clients who've been to see lots of different people um, of all sorts of um, counselling, psychologist kind of basis before they come and see me. And um, so this kind of academic psychology, you know, you have this idea called applied psychology or practical psychology. <laughs> it's like, well, shouldn't it all be applied and practical? So, so for me, it's really interesting because I'm regarded as as woo-woo and alternative and I don't have the credibility to get into institutions and organizations because I don't have a bit of paper that says I'm able to read a book and rehash what some person a hundred years ago said about the way the brain works <laughs> uh, whereas in the trenches I'm like well this is what happens this is the reality of what happens like you so there's huge parallels between the dog training world and the therapy world in that yeah, um, and so um, the academic side of the dog training world is um, highly frustrating for me because I feel like I am an academic. I feel like that's, um, you know, that's how I cut my teeth in the world. I learned how science works, the good and the bad, and um, even more so actually than, than many because I worked in science for seven years. So um, not only did I do my degree in biochemistry, I've also got the immersion and working around I worked in IT while I was doing my degree in uh, Wellcome which is quite a big well-known pharmaceutical and also has other branches under it you know for example working with um, Cancer Research and Diabetes UK and, and other lesser known charities under its under its umbrella so I was immersed in that world and, and seen the good and the bad um, so the way that clinical behavior is going at the moment and behaviorism is really quite black and white um, and recent recent discussions are become more apparent that emotion doesn't come into it um, which is quite surprising because that's sort of you know <laughs> I don't make any sense again it seems like we're we're discussing lab rats and experiments that were done a long time ago how are they relevant now when we have so much neurobiology it's interesting so many years ago um, one of the first international jobs I did I saw I was I was working in a call centre and I was doing tech support and um, 
I was really good at it. And so they promoted me and they gave me the job of writing the training. So they, they made me train manager and um, training manager of, of nothing. But <laughs> now anybody working for me or anything, but I was a training manager. I was responsible for writing and delivering training um, for all the techies. And that was great. And I loved that job. And then the company I, I started with, it was 20 when I started. And then 10 years later, there were 17,000 people worldwide. And I'd kind of grown with it. And, and what happened was they grew through acquisition. They were acquired by an interna- a European company and then an international company. And it kept just kept growing. So I kept growing with it. So I found myself um, instead of training techies in Watford, um, traveling to Dublin, and training customer service reps who didn't even know really how to use a computer, um, which was really interesting for me to adapt. But the guy who ran the center in Dublin um, was um, quite a challenging person to work with. So I was like a little newbie, not really used to working with different managers, um, traveling over to Dublin every Monday and back every, I'd stay there a couple of days and come back. And then I'd talk to this guy and I'd say, you know, uh, we need your team to do this. And he'd go, um, no, no, you should do it for them. And I'd be like, well, they're not going to learn if they don't do it themselves. And he's like, no, no, but you should do it for them. And and, and you kind of say something and he'd go, well, that's not relevant. And it'd be like, you go to him and you'd say, you know, this pencil is red. And he'd go, no, it's green. And you go, no, it's, it's a red pencil because that's red. And he'd go, that's irrelevant. We can't talk about that. We can only talk about the pencil. And you'd be just like, ah. You know, it was so frustrating that it was this tunnel vision and his way of thinking. And if you try to factor in other things to have a, a, a reasonable discussion and, and make it work, um, then he would just say, well, that's irrelevant. And I think that's what happens in academia as well, is it's this tunnel vision where you're creating very often lab situations that don't factor in other variables, the environment, the situation changing, random elements that can't be controlled. And there's so much emphasis put on um, statistical validity of data, you know, that actually what you end up doing is create a, um, a such a clean kind of uninfected environment that it's not realistic in any way, shape or form because you're so concerned with statistical validity that you just discount everything that actually you need to factor in. Yeah, so the the environmental factors, um, the the owner factors. And so what's even more frustrating now is that um, we're basing our, our learning on models that were done, you know, almost 100 years ago, um, and, and if not before. Um, and we are not able to do the experiments because they're unethical now on, you know, dogs in a lab. So we base it on lab rats, very, very, as you say, clinical conditions where it's, you know, there's a maze, there's a rat, very limited things. Um, and we are, you know, we're basing that knowledge because we can't do further experiments. We're doing a lot of um, theory and well, that's how the lab, the rat does it, so therefore that must be true. <laughs> yeah, and we don't have the data, right? That's the other thing that's really interesting is like now, um, increasingly there's this model um, which is called open source, which is um, you publish what your intent is with your study before you even do the study, and then you share the raw data so that other people can cut it in different ways. <laughs> and, and you know, so we we have distractions in Starbucks in, in, in here, we have Jess's dogs in the garden. <laughs> I haven't nuzzed my milk bottle, like, rude. 
<laughs> but yeah, so so we have the ability to cut data in different ways, but we don't with all this data that's 100 plus years old. There isn't, there's just one version, which so many studies have shown that it was already biased. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, certainly in the psychology world. Peer review was just your buddy up the road. You know, you had this deal where your buddy reviewed your stuff and you reviewed theirs, and that was a peer review done, and it got published. You know, it's it, it's quite. We can't go back and replicate that, and we also know that you know we've talked about it before. Um, well, maybe we haven't. The um, you know rats when they're they're given um, a drug, as in you know like a substance like cocaine. Um, in, in the laboratory they will become addicted to it but if they're given um other alternatives to do as in yeah. you know friends and i think it was a theme park they built for the rats or something equivalent they, they chose not to do that so um you know it was it's other pressures that that got them addicted to to drugs very similar to humans you know when the environment becomes unacceptable and and you know not um not set up in a way that's positive for the animal or the individual we resort to things that are going to soothe us and help us and so we know this so why are we going okay well that same rat that became addicted we're going to get him to do mazes and teach him how to learn by shaping but we don't have other I mean you know there's a fundamental problem in Britain we we are feeders we give our dogs food so one of the most frustrating things about running a dog class without doing any pre-work is that people will come along with a fed dog and so you're trying to teach that dog um, based on you know how a, a rat learns um you know with your with your quadrants positive reinforcement give him some food well that's not positive reinforcing to give food to a dog who's well fed so then we have to say well you know starve your dog don't don't bring him bef- don't feed him before you come skip a meal and then you're thinking well do we want to be doing that so you've got the line of thought which is no don't do that find something that's more motivating which is really tricky because all of the the luring is based on you know food based so you've got problems right there the, the, the dolphins that were clicker trained and, and that were originally used were starved of food so they would become yeah. interested in the clicker training. Do you think that if you took a wild dolphin and started clicking and giving him fish that he would stay around and play with you? Maybe out of interest he might for a short time, otherwise he's going to go F off and going to go hunt. Yeah. So <laughs> my line of thought has come away very much from, you know, even clicker training is a form of control. Even clicker training, which is its most positive force-free element, is yeah. a form our control over the animal so if we really want to be uh, purely positive or force-free and, and what that means to me is you know not not what's become all dark and sinister <laughs> but what that means to me is how are we meeting the animals emotional as well as physical needs so now in my sessions I talk about breed specific needs how are you meeting your breed specific needs and we, we're not it's not something that we think about it's about what we want right yeah not yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the the interesting thing with the rats is there was so much of a hoo ha about let's create a stimulating environment, and it was transferred into understanding people and you know addiction comes from you, you don't have enough connection, you don't have enough to do. So what we need to do is we need to um, you know set everybody up with with things to do. You know, get them on computer games, get them knitting, get them something like that because this is the solution. Because in a in a in a lab, a rat that um, is gets addicted is is doesn't get addicted when it's got other things to do. But then when you go into the um, environment that the rat actually lives in naturally. None of the rats would get addicted to drugs. You know, the natural environment has enough in it 
to stop the addiction to drugs. It's only when you take every other stimulus away that we are stimulus driven, right? We are, we're stimulus driven by in everything that we do. That's why this concept of gamification works so well. If you think about any of the Facebook games that you play or Wordle or any of these things, this is gamification. This is like Wordle. It's, you have you have like six guesses to guess a word every day. How can that keep people's interest day after day after day? Because you're like, can I do it in two? Can I do it in three? What did I do with my friends do? And if you if you don't guess it one day, it resets to zero, right? That's a really simple little algorithm, but it keeps people engaged. And gamification is is working on motivation. And what you know when you're training a dog is you can't do anything without motivation. If you've got a dog that doesn't care, that isn't motivated by toys or food or anything, you're stuck. Well, you're the not same you're not stuck in the in the old days, and still some people um, will be reverting to then fear and intimidation. So do it or else. Yeah. So that's that's the other yeah, way. Yeah. If you don't want to motivate, you can you can force. Um, which brings us nicely to um, the divide that's come into the dog world. So you're we, we understand from the science that the the dogs learn quicker if they get the idea themselves. So if they pick it up themselves, which is why you know, luring is, is going to be better than um, forcing the dog's bum on the ground. Luring is better because he, he chooses to do it and he says, the dog says, oh, I get I get the game. Whereas right, making yeah. the dog do it, you have to do more repetition. So that's something useful that's come from science. We, we understand that, you know, motivating factors get there quicker and information's retained longer, um, if, that's, if that's what we can believe. So um, it makes sense that we were driven towards a movement of, well, let's motivate rather than, you know, let's carrot rather than stick, right? And the yep. same with, yep. with too. We know that motivating people and, and children is, is healthier for their immune system, for the mental well-being, uh, than making them do something. And you get better results. Unless fallout, which for humans would be mental health later down the line when they realise that their parents were... Um, Coercive. <laughs> All sorts of words came to mind when you left a dramatic form. <laughs> like, what do I choose? I'll just go with the dog word. So, um, yeah, we, we we have this divide now where the science says do the positive thing. And, and it came from that good foundation of motivation is better than, than carrot. Yeah. But we went towards, ne- than stick, sorry, carrot is better than stick. But never use stick, never use um, consequences, never use fear, never use. And, and then we've got this question about, well, hang on, we, we live in fear, but we're not fear, fearful of the fear. Like, I've obviously got a fear of going to jail or getting hurt um, or dying. Um, but I don't live my life worried about that. It's just that I'm aware of that consequence if I were to cross certain lines. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, we would talk about like stress and fear being it's a normal, healthy thing in most circumstances to because otherwise you just doesn't it's chaos, right? There's no rules. There's no boundaries. There's no anything. You do need to kind of have some algorithm to say how to respond in different situations. So I think that, that's kind of human nature and, and everybody has to be inhibited to certain levels um but chaos absolutely so yeah. if, we, if we're all doing what we want without any um moral compass or physical well sorry um without any consequence or any physical consequence so for example if i were to take a running jump off of, of a cliff there's going to be a physical consequence of that we, we can guess that i don't have to go and do it to prove that it's yeah. going to be, you know quite obvious um 
So, you know, there's things that we do and we don't do. Now, if I never learned that or no one ever told me that, that would be a dangerous experiment for me to try. So the idea is that we've had those experiments come before. People have eaten the mushrooms and jumped off the cliffs. And, and so we learn from our ancestors what's right and what's wrong. And we're assuming now that we shouldn't tell children. Well, we, we do with children, obviously, but it's different with dogs because we can't explain it. So we have to, well... <laughs> <laughs> experience it but we're not understanding that it's the, not the English because what, what you know from my perspective we're having people talk to the dog and try and explain as if they were a child but actually they have to experience the the thing and the experience word is the key word there right because um yes I don't need to jump off a cliff to know that jumping off a cliff is a bad thing but if I had never fallen off something hurt myself um <laughs> Jess is using the camera as a mirror and it's distracting me. <laughs> I'm kind of, part of my brain is thinking, well, what if I can't separate the audio and the video and everybody has to watch the video <laughs> version of this? You're anyway. in trouble. Yeah, in trouble. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I, I, um, I know that it hurts to fall off something, but I don't know that it hurts to fall off something because somebody told me that it hurts to fall off something. I know because I experienced doing this. Now, if you have somebody that is really terrified of getting hurt, then they don't have any experiences in life and they will still get hurt at some point because they can't control everything. So the real advantage of praise versus punishments, if we just keep them as simple categories, is that through um, punishment, you can only take an experience that they have and say, this is wrong. It doesn't allow you to do all the thousands of experiences you might have. Well, with praise is a generalized thing. In this situation, attempt to do it this way. So you're, you've got, you cover far more bases by praising for something and encouraging than you could ever do by punishing, because by punishing, you have to have every single example exist and with no theory behind why you're punishing them and just say, don't do it. So um, I think I think dogs barking is a really good example because dog barking is a fixed action. It's an intrinsic thing that dogs do. In itself, there is nothing wrong with a dog barking. So if you tell a dog off for barking, it doesn't know why it's being told off because barking is such a natural thing for it to do. But what it can do is if you kind of get it in a lot of trouble, if you punish it for barking, it can go, when I do this thing, I'm going to get in trouble. And oh, shit, I just did that thing again. Oh, my God. And it can make it really anxious because at any moment it can get in trouble for something that it doesn't think is a problem to do. Whereas if you say, go do this instead, every time you want to bark, I'd really love it. If you just came and said hi to me, then it'll go. Oh, cool, cool. I can come say hi. And it will it will do a different behavior. So it gives it options rather than having to put it in this permanent state of at any moment I could do something wrong, which is essentially a hypervigilant state. And then you've got the exposure versus protection. So um, one of the things that I, I noticed that I've done with puppies is to not pick them up when they've got challenges. So, um, you know, obviously I do a lot of walking and the puppies will go through the woods um, and get stuck behind a, a tree that's fallen and the other dogs jump over it. The puppy says, I don't know how to do this. And even might cry, well, even while I'm standing there, I'm not going to walk away, I'm watching, but I allow them to problem solve. So this is where um, the, the brain is, is making more neural connections. We know this now, that if you allow for the problem solving, the dog uses its resources rather than going, cry, pick me up, I don't know what to do. 
we are creating more um, neural pathways by allowing them to go, okay, what knowledge do I have that I can use in this situation? I can't go over it. Let's see if I can go around it. And they problem solve. And then in the future, these things are really easy for them. And they're actually less anxious because we've allowed for these different, these, you know, we've allowed for that exploration and that, that um, understanding of the wider world rather than going into, if I panic, I'll get help. If I panic, I'll get help. And that's so, exactly um, what is behind health anxiety um, and a lot of OCD behaviours. So um, obsessive compulsional disorder is called, but there's actually lots of OCD behaviours. There's OCD type of eating. So everybody assumes it's the switching the light on and off and turning the lock and the handle lots of times. It's not. Um, you have people who have OCD behaviour about what they eat, worried about being sick, something like that. A metaphobia. You have people who have OCD health anxiety. They feel any sort of niggle. They assume it's something bad. Um, and very often when people become parents, they're um, trying to control the environment so bad things don't happen. And the reality is bad things happen. Um, the things that cause us the biggest problem in life are the ones that blindside us. You know, those moments where your world changes and you wish you could go back to five minutes before where everything was different and everything was okay. Those things we can never control for. So any sort of level of anxiety and control is a false premise based on if I just do it, no bad things will happen based on the fact that bad things have already happened. So the irony is that actually you have plenty of experience and evidence that you have the skills and resources to deal with the bad things that are happening or have happened because you're here worrying about it. So, so it's the thing that got you through it is not the choices you made, like with the puppies, it's that you go, huh, I can work this out. I can keep going even when it feels hopeless. I can do all of this stuff. That's your resilience. Yeah, it's your resilience, right? So you know that you've got the skills and resources, which means I can deal with anything. And that's what we want to teach the dogs. And that's what humans need to realize about themselves that they don't realize. So if we go back to our um, uh, talk about, you know, theory versus practical, um, and, and a little bit more about clinical behavior, because this is, um, I think, got very little application in the dog training world. And dog training is what most people assume will help them with their dog. Um, and um, to be honest, I'm going to um, also refer to the dog training world. So <laughs> I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle of, of both sides. I wish that the academic world had their shit together, but I feel like, especially from recent events, I feel like they really just don't. Um, you know, the current understanding coming out of our most prestigious behavioural institution is um, give the dog affection and attention only when it wants it and, and not when, you know, especially for, for aggressive cases, don't touch the dog when it's sleeping. Don't annoy the dog. Don't have children go near the dog. Keep the dog, you know, especially at night if it's tired, just don't approach the dog. Only give the dog affection when it comes to you which is the complete opposite of what I teach, which is don't allow the dog to demand and, and put your social status down and increase its social status. Why would you want to create... Well, that's like living with a domestic violence abuse partner. Yeah, telling to someone, telling a woman that, you know, only do as you're told, um, don't ever ask for affection, um, you know, take the beating, but, you know, try and avoid it. <laughs> like, and to be honest, if, if the dog does end up like, because you can't manage, then just put it down um it's just it blows my mind and it's 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 not even it's past the point of being upsetting i'm now i'm now actually quite angry about it i think because we should be doing better we have much more knowledge 
Yeah, I, I think I've said before um, <laughs> that sometimes when dogs have behavioural problems, it feels like the owner is in an abusive relationship with their dog. And it's like really unpleasant for people to hear that because the pet has so much loaded love, unconditional, I should be supporting them kind of stuff that goes with it. But but that's what you're talking about. You're talking about being gaslighted and <laughs> narcissism when you don't dare go near your dog unless it's in a good mood. Is it in a good mood? Can I fuss it? Or am I going to get bitten if it's not in a good mood? It's probably me. I probably, you know, it, it was tired. I probably shouldn't have upset it when it was tired. And that's and hearing. and we, we, we find excuses and we pattern match as to why. Maybe I put the camera in his face. Maybe, maybe he was too tired. And we do. We make it excuses for the behavior rather than going it's very simple the dog is correcting you for something that you did because it feels it can because it's yeah. higher just than you it's very very simple and when you put it into those terms it becomes a lot easier to to say well actually I can change that I can change how I behave so that the dog respects me and that's not about hitting the dog or shouting at the dog no. and, and the absolute opposite actually it's more about um emotional um and and tactical uh, engineering to make sure that you're creating a situation where the dog goes oh stuff comes from you rather than yeah that's my slave over there and it will do as I tell it it's it's, it's funny isn't it because we want this loving companion this relationship and we worry that it doesn't love us and it doesn't like us so we do all the things like feeding it and let it get away with all sorts but actually None of us like to work or live in a situation where there are no boundaries. We don't like to feel we're responsible for everything. If you're in a, a relationship with somebody, you want them to see you, hear you. If you've had a bad day, you want them to go, God, I'm really sorry you've had a bad day. Let me give you a hug. Let me let me reassure you and be there for you. You want that kind of equal seeing each other support. It's not about... Um, blind doting and actually when you don't know how the other half is going to react it makes you really like tread on eggshells and really insecure and and so we create that environment for our dog because our dog's like looking to us for cues and we're not giving any and we're letting them get away with everything and the and then eventually they as you know they end up at the route where they're put to sleep because they're unacceptable as a pet dog like, that's not very fair on the dog or you, you know, in your relationship with them. Yeah, so then let's consider the other the other side of that, which is um, the other side of my job this week has been dealing with owners that uh, have been working with trainers that use coercion. So the dog's not behaving. So rather than ignore it, we're going to punish it and we're going to make it, make it do it. So whether that's the electric collar um, and you know, use the collar when the dog's um, not not doing a, a cue. So we ask it to sit, it doesn't sit. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna use punishment until it gets we get what we want. Um, and then the dog's behavior in that situation changes. The dog's behavior goes, okay, in this situation I can't behave like that, I'll just not behave like that. Um, but it still has the same problems away from that situation because the owner ultimately isn't doing the same thing as the trainer and um or the the environment is feeling like um uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm feeling like i should do this here but actually i'm still stressed and as soon as i'm away from that i'm gonna behave like this so if the dog's not feeling safe 
um, or if it's feeling like there's too much pressure on it, there, it's, it's going to change its behaviour. But that's not true, is it? It's not true behaviour change. True behaviour no. change. It's environmental, right? Yeah. So um, the, the, the question that... Um, sorry, I'm really distracted because I've got six people puppies at my feet just now. Look. Hey, oh, so <laughs> so hard to focus you don't on. you don't get to see the video of this, so you didn't just get to see the, oh, the yeah. <laughs> puppy squishies <laughs> that you just did. You saw the puppy though. We can describe it. It's very sausage like long. Well, okay. the, the little sausage dogs, they don't they look like just little dogs when they're little, and as they get older, they stretch out and become more sausage dog looking. You can almost not tell when they're really little what type of dog they're gonna be. <laughs> they're quite generic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, we can we can take a photo and we can put it on the podcast picture so that people aren't going. I want to see a puppy. Um, yeah. So um, a dog shouldn't be desperate to get out of the situation. If if your dog is in a class or even on a walk where it's just like um, behaving itself, but then desperate to get away um, and not quite itself. Uh, you can tell when a dog's happy, and I know that science can't because we can't tell the difference between apprehension and anticipation. Um, in, in the books, in, in pictures, we can't tell the difference. Um, but we can in real life. We know when our dog is, is feeling its happiest and its most joyful. Um, you know, it's allowed to do natural behaviours. So if a dog's on the walk and it's behaving itself, but it comes away from that walk and, it, and it's um, desperate to get back to, to real life, if you like, that's a big cue or clue <laughs> that that dog wasn't happy, right? Um, we yeah. want it to be joyful. We want it to be looking forward and anticipation to the next time it comes. Um, so when we're using, I hate to use the word suppression because it's completely overused. And, and I think that there's a place for suppression, but not suppressing the emotion of the dog or not considering how we can change the emotion of the dog so that it, it moves from an apprehension to anticipation. And that's the other side. When people don't have an understanding, when trainers don't have an understanding of the theory, um, then how do we... You know, of learning theory how do we then um get them to appreciate that the surface behaviors are being changed but actually we could be doing more damage by not uh, helping the dog overcome its fears and phobias or even you know changing its emotion to go okay that dog isn't as that a stimulus isn't as bad as i think it is yeah and i think it's um it's back to that whole environmental thing i'm just trying to to map over to the to the owners and the the human factor um i think the, the we, we keep on using the word safety and i think safety is an important word because um it's considering the emotional state and the environmental state of the individual which is so often overlooked so you, you go into a therapy session you go sit with your therapist and for an hour which is timed very often you know at the end of the hour you're, you're kicked out of the room no matter what state you're in um and you have this hour where some professional gives you a deep meaningful insight into what's going on in your head and, and you might have all these moments of realization and then you walk out the room and Dawn sneezes. Excuse me. Normally I'm twice, that's three. Um, you walk out the room and now you've got all this stuff stirred up and you're like, the world looks different. In fact, I had a client recently who said, you should tell everybody to go for a walk after a session with you because everything looks different. And that was in a good way. 
but very often you've got all this um, stuff that's changed and the world looks different and you're now on your own to process it and and, and you kind of have all the effects of it. And actually the real learning, the real change is then not actually what started in the session, not actually what started in the training session with you in the park. The real work happens every day in all those different situations where you're proofing what they've learned, both the owner and the dog. And for me, the the client is proofing the difference it makes for their brain not to be switched off. What does it actually mean in reality? If I have somebody who has a fear of flying or a dental phobia, I will not see them until they've got a dentist appointment or a flight because there is no point me changing something they can't proof and see what the difference is. So I need that opportunity to be able to, to notice the change. And you're the same. You can, we know you can take a dog and you can do all sorts of things with it, but how's that going to help that dog reintegrate into living with its owner? It's not. Yeah. So that's, that brings us nicely on to the whole um, uh, intention perception. Where did I get to with that? Intention perception, uh, emotion, behaviour outcome. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that's my new thing just now. So um, we were speaking, I was in the park yesterday with two litter mate uh, adult dogs, one we've worked with for a, a couple of months, well, since last summer probably, uh, and then the sister came along presenting the same issues that the first one did last year. And she wants to get the same outcome that the other one has got now, which is a dog that she can take anywhere, relaxes, and uh, so on. So um, I overheard them saying, isn't it interesting how the, the second sister had more energy than the first? And I thought that was a peculiar thing to say. But actually, I think what they mean, and I don't think the energy is different. Like, I don't feel a difference in their energy levels. But what I observe is that the second one, um, it's frantic energy. So the lunging, the, the barking, the bite, the, well, that's not biting, but it's, you know, it's frantic energy where it's all um, not really focused. And the second one had the same energy. I'm going to put that in um, parenthesis. It had the same energy, but Albus, you're really, really annoying. He's sitting whining at me. If I let him out, you'll pee everywhere. So Albus, Albus back on holiday for the weekend and he's just sitting there whinging at me so we were sitting outside but my battery was dying so I've had to come in and he's sitting whining so I'm gonna have to release him um because like I honestly it goes right through me whinging and then I'm just reinforcing him whinging by letting him out but he's not my dog so hey <laughs> <laughs> sure his owners will be thrilled to hear that <laughs> you can come and sit on my lap and be reinforced for that whinging um yeah so um, he, just just so we know he's he's a dachshund so <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to Jess now has a giant dog sat on the lap <laughs> so um yeah the where, where was I oh the, the, the two dogs yeah so the energy so she mentioned the energy was more and I thought okay so I took that to Dawn so we that's you so we put that to Dawn Thanks. and we talked about you know what is that then that that uncontrolled frantic non-cognitive energy so dogs you know we, we call it reactive now in the dog training world where it's just you know whoa and then the same energy so I was thinking about Tristan how when I first came in that, that was he first came in that was that frantic energy and then that's changed now but he's got more like physical energy because he's you know obviously fitter he's um able to do you know a lot more training and it's focused and it's 
the energy is not even the right word but anyway I asked you and you can tell us what you thought (laughs) I can't actually I can't remember what I said but yeah (laughs) I think energy is always a really interesting word um and everybody has (laughs) sorry that's what you said yeah that's right because everybody has different perceptions of what energy is and and quite often I talk about emotional energy with my clients and how energy can't be stopped it can only be transformed and one of the difficulty with emotions is that we try and suppress or contain them and that's what causes lots of damage both physically and emotionally and mentally to not allow our emotions to happen and not flow through them so for me it's kind of interesting the different levels that we we talk about when we talk about energy because we were initially sort of saying well there's emotional energy and there's cognitive energy and and in my world um cognitive energy is not quite the same thing it, it's the, the brain is the control room and you literally charge the batteries up of your cognitive thinking overnight you know it, it's when you're hungry when you're tired you can't think straight that's because you need a certain amount of battery to be able to to function in your brain and this is why um you can get up in the morning and go i'm going to go to to the gym after work i'm going to do that but at the end of the day after work you're like i don't have the energy left because any um ability to override your instinctive choices relies on that battery and that that juice in your brain right so we are essentially subconscious automatons just going through on autopilot where we think we're rational logical thinking beings we're not we've just got a little tiny bit of rad- enough brain to override some of the the primitive demands that we have so um when we're talking about exerting that particular energy and trying to have more of it then we have two options one is we can Um, increase the size of the battery which you can do through mental exercises because um, the brain is like a muscle and we can train a muscle uh, in a gym and just because you train your arms in a gym doesn't mean you can't then use your arms to lift a bag of potatoes for example so if we train our brain on one particular thing we can use it for all sorts of different things so what that means is it doesn't run out as quickly as you go through the day but we also um spend energy depending on what we need to do so if you was like 10 years ago you asked me to just phone somebody and and book a table for example that would have taken me a huge amount of energy because that was a big deal for me to do that sort of thing and so I would have spent a lot of my battery trying to pluck up the courage to phone some random person and book a table whereas now it's not such a big deal for me so that's a head game so so we have this brain as a control room sending signals to the body and that is affecting and the body is sending signals to the brain so this is all based on heart rates adrenaline and heart pumping and the brain needs blood right it needs blood to function so all these components in our brain if we've got adrenaline going if our heart rates up too high they're not getting fed the thing that they need to work So the whole system can be put out of whack by our environment, right? So what's the thing that changes our state? The thing that changes our state is usually an environmental trigger. It's rarely just simply an internal trigger. And um, I think that's really relevant. I'm super excited that you mentioned um, physics there as well. So um, 
<laughs> so the the first law of thermodynamics, um, so mass energy, law of conservation, the total amount of energy in the universe is, is constant. So you're, uh, like you said that, well, you, you quoted Albert Einstein, I don't know if you realised that, but energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So it just changes from one form to the other. And so what we're doing is we're essentially taking that and, and it can be, so I actually put the same question yesterday to Liz, my shiatsu instructor, and she said that the chaos part that I call, you know, that, that chaotic energy where it's not focused and it's, um, she think, she said that it wouldn't be, in shiatsu, it wouldn't be evenly distributed. So there's blocks and you talk about blocks as well. Yeah. Um, it's conduits, right? So energy has to travel as well. So I think yeah. it's interesting as we talk about it because we have energy, but it, it doesn't exist in a in a vacuum. You know, it's not just this floating energy around. There's conduits that the energy travels, and if those conduits are blocked, then the energy isn't getting to where it's needed to be. And, and it's really, I mean, I know we're, this is taking a little bit away from dogs and human brains, but um, it's really interesting that when you go further into physics uh, and delve into quantum physics that we don't actually science doesn't have an answer as to we know that um light for example is waves and particles but yeah. we don't exactly the substrate that it travels through so um a wave by the way do you what do you think about when you think about a wave i think about the amplitude kind of waves that you'd see on the monitor yeah, and um, so that was it. Was explained to me by someone brighter that um, it's like imagine a wave in a a stadium of humans doing the what's that called the next wave. Yeah. yeah, so that's how light behaves, right? <laughs> so it's going from one to the other, but nobody knows what the medium is that it's that's transferring through. Right. <laughs> so we don't have um, we don't have a working theory for that at the moment, which is fascinating because you're like even though we've been in space, even though we we've, we've been it because like in space, we surely then so if you were flashing a torch outside of the spaceship, you know yeah. when you're doing a little walk, that that presumably we would see the light flash, right? Well, that's the important part because then you've got like we're totally disappearing off track here but that's the important part that if you were a certain distance away it would take time so the time is the, re the relevant part and yeah you know uh, time is not just happening at the same time as we know <laughs> it's all relative <laughs> explaining time by explaining time is always useful <laughs> so yeah that that light how when you flash it from you know a couple of planets away the time it takes to get here is the the relative part and so what is it traveling through to get here is the important bit and then they don't know that uh yeah in, in science and physics they, they can't explain that one at the moment but nobody wants to admit it so it's kind of like the dirty secret of physics <laughs> i love it i love that so yeah when we talk about energy and um you know the shiatsu and, and chi and um fascia these are things that we don't like to talk about in in the western world so we, we kind of just go well these things happen but we don't really know why and it fascinates me because you know science true science should be the um the quest for knowledge and why is this happening we know that it does but why and so yeah. that's what you and i do right we go okay we have this thing that we do we've got um, tangible evidence that it's happening why is it happening how do we get it to be reproduced and then how do we also get the world to accept that it's reproducible and um, accept it as you know the way that it should be yeah uh, or, or the easiest way to get there because we've got the reasoning behind not just it works so there you know it has to be a um, 
it works because. Yeah, we're both the same on that. We're both like, okay, why is this working? I need to understand why this is, I can see it working. And I can, so I, then you question yourself and go, right, what is it? And then I think the hardest thing both of us um, have a problem with is like, okay, we've got this thing that works. We can, we can come up with a theory of why it works, but it's so different from what everybody else is saying. Why is everybody else not saying what we're seeing? Why is everybody else? So, so what's wrong with us? It's like, why? I'm missing the point. Am I? Because it's obvious. We are because when I speak to people, and and you know, I did say to myself recently, I am, I'm, you know, obviously because of recent events, we are opening up to a different um, type of of people. We, uh, for you know, for the last twenty years, it's been come along and learn how to teach your dog to sit and stay, and now I'm getting dog dog handlers and trainers that are got really well trained dogs, and so I'm able to have a little bit more in depth discussion with them, um, and which is uh, really good for me because it's nothing worse than having to reinvent the wheel all the time. So it's interesting, um, but also. Um, what's happening is I'm meeting people that are also academic and also coming from the same school of thought um, and have the same frustrations and I'm going yes they are validating my thoughts as well because they come from that this similar background so um, you know I think you and I exist somewhere between the practical and the, and the academic and well that's not true because we are academic the way that we we progress but somewhere between the scientific community of, of how that all works we're probably paid more than them haha and um the, <laughs> the very very low pay in the scientific community and the practical trenches we're somewhere in between that and i think that's what gives us this this unique perspective but i am meeting people now that have got similar um thoughts even if they're on an earlier version of their journey but it, it's really helpful because it makes me think that's that's because of where i've come from and, and not a lot of trainers come in from that angle. And, and the same with you, with the, you know, with your therapy work. Um, you, you're unique in, in what you're doing, but there are others that are going to be thinking similar lines to you. It might not have your skill. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, you know, that's what makes it interesting is, is not just to do it, but to ask why so we can replicate it. So one of the things that that we talk about is how do we teach somebody else to do it? And I think that's always a really great perceptual position to get into. It's like, can I teach somebody else to do this? And if I can't, why not? What's the thing that makes it different? Because you should be able to teach somebody else to do it in the main. It, maybe they won't be able to do it to the level you can because of a, combina a unique combination. But um, <laughs> it's swiping up on the screen. Because like, oh, I've got his hand in front of the computer. You've gone all fuzzy, and I think maybe it's because um, I had um, to open or something. I hate it when I feel fuzzy. Um, fuzzy well, can we go back just, just to talk about the energy stuff? Because um, yes, you know we've got different energy. types. We've got different types of energy um, when we're relating it to behaviour rather than physics. Um, and so you've got the chaotic energy. So Liz described it as uh, all in your head, and yeah. the dogs. Because this will be interesting for people listening. With this type of dog so nervous or energetic or reactive um you know when i say energetic like you know the hyperactive that's all in your head and those dogs tend not to like having their feet touched or they'll, they'll be sensitive about areas um that are away from their head um or titchy about dogs coming into their space that's the important part right so it's not about being over there it's about if you're going to come into my space i'm going to yeah you back because I don't want you in this bubble that's not safe for me to have you close to me so um the the energy needs distributed we need to unblock what's going on 
and sometimes it's not it's a body problem this is the confusing thing for owners right so um with with storm just now um it's going to be quite confusing to get our head around that it's not necessarily there's something going on in the body there might be physical but it might it's more likely to be the the body mind uh, connection and that can come from a variety of things and imagine talking to a behavioral scientist about the mind not being connected to the body could you imagine that conversation <laughs> and yet well, we know I think it, with humans right we know that there can absolutely. be a with, with the, the mind and the body and that therefore a lot of ill health problems can come from that as well um, and of course it's going to happen with dogs the question of why it's happening is the is the, the bit that I'm interested in I think that's where the the connection you know mind body connection it, it's not treating the two things as silos which again medical world does psychology world does they they treat them as separate things where it's it's a holistic thing um or a 4d thing let's call it that um so if the you know epigenetics is the study of of minds and cells in a really simple dawn expressing it kind of way you know it's how does if, if you think about it um if you get attacked by a virus you don't have to consciously activate the immune response in your body but you can have had something that suppresses the immune response in your body so <laughs> the mind body connection the, the the brain tells the cells what to do but the cells also have to have the mechanism for doing it so that when the brain communicates with them they know what to do and at any point in that process something can go wrong the cell can be uh, faulty in some way the brain can have a glitch or the conduit which allows the brain to tell the cells what to do can also have a glitch so you've got all these different elements and i think in a dog essentially it's simpler because you can kind of go okay we just need to jump start the connection like it you did with storm you know you kind of go actually this is connected to your brain what and it's like look it feels good what okay you know you can you can do that can i don't do that. think it's quite so easy with a person well, we can do that physically do that mentally so it is easy with a person because i've seen you do it um lots of times um and it takes an outside force i think because what happens is we get stuck in our own perception dogs are the same this is yeah. my perception it's very difficult to change this perception and sometimes an outside force is it's what's needed and when i say force i don't mean force i mean an outside value yeah. Um, coming in and and changing the perception and then you're, you're left in this kind of and I've seen it with your clients as well whether you know you, you ask them how they are after a day after two days and they go yeah and then they start to re, something reassemble something processes so sleep's required for that the brain needs to, to have that that time and then you see changes so when people have a, a severe case um, and then with the dog for example and then they, they say oh the dog's really quiet or the dog's um you know, withdrawn, that could be taken as suppression when we're doing change perception. So my question is yeah. then to myself, how do I know that I've not suppressed the dog? How do I know I've changed the emotion of the dog? And that would be because of the exposure to um, each other. And I don't think that's happening when you just go, stay away, I'm going to correct you, I'm going to do this thing to you. They also need time to go and have a free body around others because the connection parts of it we haven't spoken to today, and that relates back to the rats being addicted. Um, it wasn't yeah. just the theme park, it was the a connection to others. Yeah, and, that, and that's the interesting thing, which is it's the 
it's more than just the lab situation. It's more than just that individual. It's the whole environment, every situation they're in, how you live with that. So I, I do sessions with clients where I, I clear trauma. And at the start of the session, um, I have somebody who is incredibly full of energy, anxious energy, I physically um, they might be shaking, they're shut down, their eyes are down, all this sort of stuff. I'm seeing this kind of behavior. And within five minutes, I have somebody whose whole face is relaxed, who is sitting, smiling, staring at me, um, and and then starts talking about, this has changed, this physically, you know, I feel lighter, I feel the knot in my stomach has gone, I feel all of this stuff has changed. And all we've done is had a conversation like you and I are having now. We've had a over Zoom, me telling them to imagine things in their head and things changing. And in five minutes, a physical, a massive physical transformation has happened through just talking, which is mind blowing and, and totally unbelievable until they then experience that the next day and the next day and the next day. And they go into a situation where they go out for a walk. You know, I had somebody recently who was terrified after a really bad dog attack and they couldn't go out without being hypervigilant. They walked out of their house that day and they went on a walk and they didn't care. They had absolutely no worries about other dogs at all. And all we'd done was spend five minutes messing around with their head and this massive physical difference had happened. So we, we got to remember that, you know, it's not just about what happens, it's about the evidence and putting it into practice and, and the so what, what does it mean? And I think that's the problem if you just do it academically. You don't have to put your money where your mouth is and live with the results. You don't have to say, so what, what will happen? You know, you send the people away to, to go and live their life without any understanding of what happens in between, which is why I said the biggest work that I do happens in between the sessions, not in the session where I'm actually talking to the client. I just make it possible, like you do. You kind of set the foundations, do the groundwork, help them understand things. But you can't do anything unless the owner goes away and puts it in place. Which is probably a, you know, with a nice profound statement from you at the end, a good point to end this podcast. So off you go, Jess. <laughs> Dr. Jess. Dr. Jess now needs to end our podcast. <laughs> okay, so set your intention on your goal. There you go. We'll end there. Oops. <laughs> I need to stop the recording. Stop recording. <laughs>